0: Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free.
1: Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more.
2: I'm hearing this voice calling my name and I'm thinking I'm hallucinating, it's the altitude, I'm hypoxic. This is impossible. And sure enough, it got louder and louder. Allison! Hey, Allison! And I'm thinking, wait, there is somebody calling me. What the hell? And he was calling my name, and I said, what? I'm yelling, what do you want? The wind is howling. And he said, I need you to promise me something. I need you to promise me that
0: you're going to go further than this. Feeling lost?
1: Then you're in the right place.
0: I'm Amanda Knox.
1: And I'm Christopher Robinson.
0: And this is labyrinths. That was Alison Levine, author of On the Edge. The moment she's describing happened on Mount Everest, just a few hundred feet away from the summit. We'll come back to that later.
1: First, we'll let her introduce herself.
2: My name's Allison Levine, and I am an adventurer, an explorer, an author. I lecture on leadership at West Point, and I'm a massive dog lover. (laughs) I was the team captain for the first American Women's Everest expedition, and I've done a bunch of uh, polar expeditions to the North and South Pole and uh, climbed the highest peak on every continent. So I love the outdoors. I love adventure. I love pushing my limits.
0: How did you decide that you wanted to be a polar explorer and mountaineer? Like, that's not a <laughs> usual thing, especially from someone who is from Arizona, of all places. When I was younger, when I was a kid growing up in Phoenix, I was
2: always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers. I think because it felt like an escape from the oppressive summer heat in Phoenix. I just loved stories about really cold places. And I never thought... Uh, I would go to those places because I had some health challenges. I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. I had my first heart surgery when I was 17. That one was not successful, but I had another one when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. And I just thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be these polar explorers, and I should go to Antarctica and try to go to the South Pole. If I want to know what it's like to be these adventurers going to these remote mountain ranges, And I should go to the mountains instead of just reading about them or watching films about them. And if, if these other guys can get out there and do this stuff, why can't I do it too? So I actually didn't start climbing until I was 32 years old.
0: What is it about those stories that captivate you? So for me
2: it's not just the intrigue of going to the, to a remote extreme environment it, it is so much about the history of those places and the early explorers and thinking about what they went through. And one of my heroes and somebody who was an inspiration to me is Ernest Shackleton. So Ernest Shackleton, he wanted to be the first guy to cross Antarctica on foot, but his ship, which was called the Endurance, ended up getting caught in pack ice. And for me, the fascinating thing is just studying their decision-making and what they did to get themselves out of a bind and just trying to figure out Shackleton's thought process.
1: Shackleton's voyage is one of the greatest tales from the age of Antarctic exploration, not because he succeeded, but because of how heroically he failed.
0: Are you about to geek out about Shackleton?
1: Yes, I'm about to geek out about Shackleton. Sorry, not sorry. It's 1915, and the Endurance is traveling through the ice flows of the Weddell Sea. They're less than 100 miles from the South Pole when the Endurance becomes trapped in the pack ice. The crew hunkers down for eight months, hoping the ice will eventually release the ship. Instead, it crushes the ship, and it sinks. and the crew is now stranded on the Antarctic ice. They camp for six more months, hoping the floes will drift north, but their rations are getting slim, so they are forced to eat their sled dogs to survive. Eventually, when the ice breaks up, they make a perilous journey to the closest island. The 28 men cram into three lifeboats, and over seven days, through stormy, ice-ridden seas, they row to Elephant Island, a remote and bleak crag where no one will know to search for them. They will all eventually die if they stay on that island. So Shackleton makes the difficult choice, foolhardy or brave, to scavenge wood from two of the lifeboats to reinforce the third. And then he and five crewmen set off to reach the island of South Georgia, where there is a whaling station. This means stranding the other 22 crew members behind, possibly dooming them to death by exposure and starvation. Shackleton and his five men set off on a journey of 800 miles across one of the world's most dangerous oceans in a tiny lifeboat facing hurricane force winds and waves cresting 60 feet high. If they are even slightly off in their navigation calculations, made from brief glimpses of the sun through stormy skies on pitching seas, they'll miss South Georgia by hundreds of miles. For 17 days, they furiously bail water from their leaking boat, and when they finally sight South Georgia, a hurricane threatens to smash them against the rocky cliffs. They wait out the storm for 24 hours, and then, sensing that some of his crew will not survive another day at sea, Shackleton is forced to make landing at the nearest cove, which is on the opposite side of the island from the whaling station. Three of the men are too weak to travel. So Shackleton and two others extract wood screws from the boat and drive them through the soles of their boots to make makeshift ice climbing crampons. They then hike for 36 straight hours across uncharted mountain and glacier with the peril of avalanches and deep crevasses with nothing but 50 feet of rope and a small ice ax. And they fucking make it. They reach help and go back for the three men stuck on the other side of the island. But by then, ice conditions in the sea force them to wait another three months before they can make a rescue attempt for the other 22 stranded on Elephant Island. And when they finally reach them, not a man has died. Miraculously, incredibly, beyond all probability, through a seemingly never-ending series of perilous obstacles, Shackleton brings every last crewman home alive. I get teary just thinking about it. I definitely have goosebumps.
0: And also, wow, that was quite the historical tangent from Allison's story.
1: <laughs> I realized that, but I took you on this journey because it's exactly the kind of wild heroism and survival against extreme odds that has inspired generations of explorers like Allison.
2: And I thought, I'm not really going to understand what this is like unless I can go out into these environments and have that feeling of isolation and have that feeling of my body feels like it wants to give up, but uh, you can't give up. You're in the middle of Antarctica. There's nowhere to go. And so for me, going into these environments was the only way to really try to figure out what these guys were going through. And Shackleton was somebody that has really been an inspiration to me.
1: But the thing is, the heroic story of Shackleton's doomed expedition, while it gives me chills, it doesn't motivate me to want to cross Antarctica or climb the highest mountains. Not everyone hears a call to adventure in that story. What kind of person answers that call?
2: It's people that have a certain mindset, right? People who are... Willing to suffer to achieve their goal. Because the interesting thing about climbing a big mountain like Mount Everest or any other 8,000 meter peak where you're climbing up into the death zone, you know that the more progress you make, the worse you're going to feel. Because the higher up on the mountain you go, the worse your altitude headache becomes, the worse your stomach feels. You lose your appetite, your muscles are deteriorating, your body is pushed beyond its limits. Every day when you make progress, you feel worse and worse and worse. And so it attracts an interesting cast of characters because they're people who are very determined. And I also have found there's typically two kinds of people that I run into on these trips, people who are incredibly selfless and who are focused on team results And then you run into people who don't seem to care about the people around them. And that's kind of a scary situation. You'd like to think that it would just be human nature to look out for the people around you. But your mind can do strange things when you're in these environments. Emotions are very much heightened. When things make you happy, they make you really, really happy. But when somebody annoys you, They really, really annoy (laughs) you. And when you're angry, you're incredibly angry. And they always tell people, do not make any important decisions when you're on a trip like this. It's easy to become irrational. And also just the fear involved can do strange things to your emotion and your behavior. And so the way that people behave at sea level can change very drastically when they're up at altitude, when there's a lot of inherent risk in the environment. So it's always interesting to try to kind of size people up and figure out, God forbid, if something should happen to someone in this group, is this somebody that's going to help out? Digging into people's minds on these trips, to me, is so fascinating too. Why are you here? What motivates you? Because a lot of people quit During an Everest expedition, because you're away for two months, you're homesick, you feel terrible, you're eating crap food, your emotions are very much heightened. So a lot of people quit before even attempting the summit and trying to figure out the difference between the people who stay the course and the people who just throw in the towel and say, "Mm, it's not happening for me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I spent a lot of time outside. I was camping and hiking when I was really young. By the time I was in middle school, I was doing multiple-day backpacking trips. And in college, I got really into rock climbing, and I frequently was trekking into the wilderness with the express intent of climbing to certain peaks, even through the rain and the snow and the wind. And so I can absolutely relate to this joy and pain of pushing one's It's exhilarating. It's also meditative because it takes a long time. But at the same time, I've never felt compelled to seek out the highest peaks and the most remote dangerous environments. In fact, I, I personally have been one of those people who turned back when I just instinctively felt like, you know what? My gift of fear is telling me something here, and I feel like I don't need to die today. (laughs) So I'm interested to know, like, you've clearly have a lot of experience reaching that moment. How and why do you decide to push past it or to acknowledge it and listen to that part of yourself?
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to think about because they say a big part of Success in the mountains is willpower, Mm -hmm. right? But too much willpower can get you killed. And the majority of deaths that occur on Mount Everest actually occur after people have reached the summit when they're on their way down because they use everything they've got in them to get themselves to the top. And they forget that the summit can never be the goal, the summit is only the halfway point. You have to be able to get yourself all the way back down alive. So you have to know yourself well enough when you see the summit and you think, okay, wait, I'm exhausted. I feel like I don't have much gas left in the tank, but I think I can go another two and a half hours to get to the summit. Okay, well then can you also go another nine or seven, however many hours, to get yourself back down to a safe camp. And so people's willpower is so strong that they get themselves to the top and they collapse shortly after they've reached the summit and they don't have enough energy reserves to get themselves back down. So yes, you want to push yourself, but there is such a fine line between pushing yourself enough to get there and pushing yourself too far so that you're not coming back from the trip. And I always say you have to go with your gut. When your gut is telling you to turn around, you turn around and you keep in mind that a mountain is just a pile of rock and ice. That is all it is. It is a pile of rock and ice and you can always go back. But if you do something dumb up there, you may not have the opportunity to go back. So that's what makes it so interesting. It is a physical challenge, of course, but it's also a mental challenge. If you push too hard, that can result in an unrecoverable error.
0: We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener?
1: My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.
0: When I was a kid, I really pushed myself physically, not only just doing like camping and rock climbing, but I was also on a premier soccer team for a while. I know, yeah,
2: you're a soccer player.
0: Yeah, and I had a coach who I loved named Mr. Lewis, who I swear was a uh, boot camp instructor at one point because he was just so tough. It's kind of amazing to me how tough he was on 12 year old girls. We would be running until we were crying. His tough love mindset got me to a place where I would get kicked in the stomach and I would keep running. And I was playing on a broken foot. My mom would be like, We need to go to the doctor. And I'd be like, No, Mr. Lewis says I'm tough. What's your thoughts about tough love? So when I was the team captain for the first American
2: women's Everest expedition, it was this very high profile trip. We'd done the whole morning show circuit and all the evening news anchors were interviewing us. 450 media outlets followed our climb. Are you just not giddy with this thought that here you are, you know, doing something that people talk about, dream about, never can even imagine themselves doing?
0: We've been following Allison and Team No Boundaries as they make their way up the highest mountain in the world for more than a month.
1: But we aren't the only ones following closely. Five American women are trying to make history by becoming the first all-American female team to scale the world's highest peak, Mount Everest. Go girl has a whole new meaning up there, doesn't it? There's also a quartet of American women who have been getting very close.
0: Right this minute, four of these five women are somewhere high on Mount Everest, waiting for just the right conditions to try for the summit.
1: But as much as some were encouraging Allison and her team, others ranged from doubtful... Despiteful,
2: The Discovery Channel sent a reporter to Basecamp and they were posting reports every day. So it's basically blog, although they didn't call it that. They say, never read the comments. And of course, I read the comments. There were people that were cheering us on, of course, but then there were people that said they had no business being on that mountain. They didn't have enough experience. They didn't know what they were doing. Between the five of us women, we had over a hundred years of cumulative climbing experience. We were a very experienced team and all the comments about they wouldn't make it, a bunch of rookies and they could have killed themselves and um, they presented a danger to other people. All of these horrible comments And people that have no idea. They have no idea. And then what made it harder, and I have not actually really talked about this before, but there were men, on the mountain, that were very threatening to us. And there was one in particular that would climb right behind me, right on my heels, and tell me, You're not fast enough. You're not fast enough. If you don't speed up, this trip's gonna be over for you. And just all these threatening things. And that just created so much more fear in me because there's already the fear associated with the environment. They call them in extremis environments. These are environments where lives are on the line. So you're already contending with that and dealing with the emotional, psychological parts of that, knowing that you could die from altitude sickness, which hits people randomly. Um, There's really no way to predict who's going to suffer from altitude sickness or who isn't. Your brain swells, your lungs fill up with fluid. So there's altitude sickness. There's avalanche danger. There is crevasse danger, these big openings in the glacier where you could fall hundreds of feet to your desk. So you're already dealing with trying to stay alive. And then you've got people that are berating you and literally telling you to your face that you really shouldn't be there. And for me, it's hard also. So I'm about five foot four, about 112, 115 pounds. And you're climbing on that mountain. And it's mostly men that are six foot four, 200 pounds. So their leg span is longer. And with every step, they're going to cover more ground. And so it was hard for me because I'd see how far ahead of me they could get so quickly. And that would kind of do a number on my confidence. But what I had to remind myself is that you don't have to be the fastest climber. You just have to be the most relentless. You just have to be the person who is willing to suffer and who will not give up on their goal. Those are the people that get to the top. So you have to block out the people you see around you that are casting doubt on your abilities. And just to be there with somebody that was doing that, that actually had some control over our permit. So he had the ability to end the trip for us whenever he wanted to. And we signed our rights away for that. And so it added to the stress of it all. I think part of it was too, the, the guy that was so threatening to us was really mad for whatever reason because he felt like we were getting so much media coverage and he just thought it was a joke that... These women who were, in his eyes, unqualified, even though we were incredibly experienced. And I climbed the highest peak on six continents before going there. We're getting all this media coverage. I mean, he had been to the mountains several times and was not covered by the media. And so he just had a chip on his shoulder. He just wanted the media coverage. And we were getting it because we were a team of women that wanted to inspire other women to get out of their comfort zones and face their fears.
1: Allison and her team could anticipate and push through the negative energy of those rooting for them to fail. But at 300 feet from the summit of Mount Everest, they faced a far more dangerous threat from unexpected severe weather, and they made the difficult decision to turn back.
2: And then we didn't make it. And then we had to come back and talk about the climb. Everyone was so focused on the fact that we didn't make it. And nobody seemed to really focus on the fact that and we were the first team of American women to even try something like this. There were not that many women in the sport back at the time and it was an altitude record for every single person on the team. And so just having to talk about this failure, I really internalized that. And I started to feel like I really let people down. I felt like disappointed the team. I disappointed our sponsor. We are sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. We had a free trip to Everest. How often is that gonna happen? And I wanted to unfurl the big Ford flag at the top of the mountain to let them know how much we appreciated them funding this trip for us. And then we didn't make it. And I remember coming back from the trip and just feeling like this failure. And then Jay Leno mocked me during his opening monologue joke and just feeling like I let everyone down.
1: Welcome to the Tonight Show. Nice to have you. Well, I guess you know. He made a crude sexual joke about how women can get so close but never actually reach their peak. I knew
0: that you had been the butt end of a Jay Leno joke. As someone who has also been the butt end of a Jay Leno joke, I have a special place in my heart for people who get publicly shamed, particularly publicly shamed women, and. I think that, first of all, the thing that Jay Leno failed to appreciate, and I think a lot of people fail to appreciate when they call what happened a failure, is that you as a leader were not just in charge of whether or not your team reached a summit but whether or not your team returned alive and like you said a lot of the the women in your group achieved things that they had never achieved before they had pushed everybody. past their own limits everybody the way that it was talked about in a broad way was as a failure, instead of it being like, here's a success story that turned out a way that people were not expecting it to be in the the beginning. So first of all, there's that aspect of it. But also, like, I do think there's an interesting spectrum of responses that one can have, because there's the sympathetic response, which is it wasn't your fault. Um, You know, you did the best you could. Good for you. You you reached, you know, you achieved something really big, even if you didn't achieve what you set out to achieve. Then there's the tough love position, which is all of that is true, but also you can actually do the thing that you intended to do. And so you're going to do it again. And you've got this. I had this friend,
2: her name was Meg Bertet, and she was an All-American soccer player at Harvard and captain of the soccer team there. And it was just her passion. She loved the sport. She beat lymphoma twice, actually, in her 20s. But because of her lymphoma treatment, she couldn't play soccer anymore because the treatment affected her lungs. She was one of my best friends, and she really inspired me. And she was like, okay, so you're going back next year to try it again, right? And I was like, no, hell no. And she said, okay, well, then you're going to go the year after. And I said, uh, no, I have zero unfinished business on that mountain. And she just delivered this tough love to me. She was like, you're not a quitter. I was like, but this is such a big failure. What if I don't make it again? Then I'm never going to get another financial sponsor. Nobody's ever going to want to climb with me. This is going to be so bad for my personal brand. If she had just said to me, oh, I'm sorry, God, that sucks. You got so close and you didn't make it. Well, it wasn't your fault. There's nothing you could do. I don't know that I would have gone back, but she's like, oh, you're going back to that mountain. Yes, absolutely you are. This is not the way you're going to go out. I know you can do this. And I said, okay, only if you go with me. And then unfortunately, she passed away very unexpectedly. Uh She was 37 years old. And she got the flu, just the regular flu that any of us could have kicked. And she passed away. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really honor her memory. So I ended up... I, I engraved her name in my ice axe and I went back to the mound just a couple of months after she passed. This is someone like, she always delivered that tough love to me and it inspired me. She said, you're not gonna let that failure stop you. Failure is just one thing that happens to you at one point in time. That's all it is, it doesn't define you.
1: Eight years after the media blitz that followed Allison's first Everest expedition, she came back to finally make it to the summit. But even after years of training since her first attempt, her confidence was shaky.
2: What if I don't make it again? And then I have failed again. And then who will want to come on a trip with me? And then what will Jay Leno say about me next time? And Mm -hmm. so going back, I felt so much more pressure to make it the second time People will sometimes say, well, it must have been easier because you knew what to expect. And that is true. But the landscape of the mountain changes from year to year as the sun melts part of the ice fall and it shifts around. There's a famous landmark called the Hillary Step that's high up on Mount Everest. That's one of the most challenging parts of the climb on summit day. And that has even changed shape since an earthquake hit a couple of years ago. So familiarity didn't build my confidence because it really wasn't that familiar. I'll tell you what made a huge difference is that I still had (laughs) the same doubts in my head. It wasn't like I thought I was just going to crush the mountain. I still had those doubts and I still had a lot of fear. So first of all, I had to realize that you can be scared and brave at the same time. And I think you've probably felt that, (laughs) I'm sure with your Mm -hmm. background. I know you've had those times where you just have to realize I'm scared, but it doesn't mean that I can't be brave also. So that was one thing. But the other thing that made a huge difference, so it's summit day on my second attempt, A storm came in just like it had done in 2002, and I couldn't believe I was back in the same exact situation. And I was just thinking, I can't believe my luck. And visibility was terrible. And that's what kind of scared me too, is I couldn't see too far down the trail. But I realized you don't have to know what's coming at you down the trail in order to keep going. Hmm. You don't have to have perfect visibility in order to put one foot in front of the other. So that's what I was doing. And then I got to this point on the mountain called the South Summit. It's a few hundred feet below the true summit of Mount Everest, but a few hundred feet still is quite a distance at that altitude. I mean, it's still going to be a couple of hours to get to the summit from there. And that is where we had turned around in 2002. And I'm getting to that point, and I am hearing this voice calling my name. And I'm thinking, I'm hallucinating, it's the altitude, I'm hypoxic. This is impossible. And sure enough, it got louder and louder. Allison, hey Allison! And I'm thinking, wait, there is somebody calling me. What the hell? And it was this guide named Michael Horst, and he was guiding a client from Australia who was not going to be able to continue, so she was gone, but he was still up there climbing. And he knew my story. He knew that I had turned around in 2002 at the South Summit, and he waited right there at the South Summit, and he was calling my name, and I said, what? What do you want? You have your oxygen mask on. The wind is howling. You have to take off your mask to talk, and I'm thinking, who is trying to talk to me? I'm trying to focus. I need to preserve my energy. I don't have time for this, and he said, Allison, And I said, what? What do you want? And he said, I need you to promise me something. And I'm thinking, what? Who is asking me for anything right now? This is not an appropriate time. (laughs) And I said, what? And I'm still kind of being short with him. I thought, make this quick. What do you want? And he said, I need you to promise me that you're going to go further than this. And he was pointing down to the ground, the South Summit, which he knew my story and he knew that was... My high point from two thousand and two, and that I had never gone past that point, and I didn't know what was beyond that. And it just meant so much to me that he waited there for me. I mean, he could have just climbed to the top and climbed back down and high fived me on the way down or whatever, but he waited there to give me some encouragement. And that gave me this boost of here is somebody that's going out of their way to encourage me. Here is somebody that is going out of their way to help me achieve success. It meant so much to me that there was somebody there that would do that for me. There was somebody there that wanted to see me succeed because the whole way what's in my head was the guy from 2002 saying, you don't belong here. You're not fast enough. If you don't speed up, this trip will be over for you. And just... All of that playing in my head. And then here's this other guy that said, you got to promise me you're going to keep going. Mm. And so I held out my big orange down mitt and I shook his hand. And I thought, I never break a promise to a friend. I told Michael I was going to keep going and so I'm going. And so that really gave me some added courage to keep walking through that whiteout, even when I couldn't see too far in front of me. And I thought, I don't have to see the summit from here. I just have to know that I can keep going. And sometimes... Just a few kind words really change somebody's outlook on something. And I think we underestimate the importance of that, Hmm. how much a little kindness and compassion, how far that can go.
0: Hmm. Yeah. What really strikes me is the big difference between him and the other guy is that one of them wanted to see you succeed and the other didn't. A big lesson for me is surround yourself with the people who want to see you succeed, whatever that looks like to you. And
2: the fact that he was waiting there for me at the South Summit, I don't know how long he was waiting there, but he's using his oxygen, right? You have a finite supply of oxygen and if you run out, you're in big trouble and you want to conserve it just in case, God forbid, something goes awry during the summit bid, you need that extra oxygen. And the fact that he waited, instead of just going and tagging the top and coming back down, he, he waited for me.
0: Mm.
2: I'll never, ever forget that. And it really made me think about how I can pay that forward and how I can be that person for somebody else that's feeling doubt and insecurity and fear. How can I be the person that gives them a few words to help them keep going?
0: Is that what you've done since? Because I feel like, you know, what does one do after you've climbed to the highest peaks and gone to both poles. <laughs> it's funny
2: because I don't feel like I need to do something riskier than that, but I still love going to the mountains. I love the challenge of it. I love the team dynamics aspects of it. I love the leadership aspects of it and the things that you can learn and the things that you can teach. And so a couple of my climbs since then have been climbs that I feel are even more memorable than my Everest climb. I've done two first ascents, one in Antarctica, one in Nepal. So these are mountains that were never climbed by anybody before. And when you go to a mountain like that, there's no information on the route. You have no data, no research, nothing. And you just have to figure it out. And I, I really... Really like doing that. But the other thing for me is just thinking about when I got to the summit of Everest in 2010, I realized that it didn't feel like this life-changing moment for me. I've heard other climbers say, this was the best day of my life, standing on top of that mountain. It didn't feel like that for me at all. I just thought, okay, here I am on a pile of rock and ice. I'm glad I'm here, but I'm focused on getting back down alive, obviously. But for me, what really stuck with me were the lessons that I learned along the way, right? Lessons about perseverance and tenacity and pushing through discomfort and pain and pushing through doubt and realizing that a few kind words can be life-changing for somebody and realizing that you don't have to have perfect visibility to keep going. You don't have to be the fastest and the strongest. If you try to be the fastest and the strongest, you could burn out. You do have to be relentless. You do have to have that feeling that you can keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so I've taken all those lessons from that Everest expedition. And I just apply those to other mountains when I get into situations that where I feel like we might be in a dire situation or a situation where we have to really reevaluate whether we're going to go up or down. I wouldn't trade that failed expedition for anything because I learned so much. And if I had to repeat one experience or the other 2002 where we didn't make it versus 2010 where I did I would repeat 2002 I mean just hmm. so many great lessons about as you mentioned about how how not to lead there's people that can get people to follow them there are people in leadership roles that are not positive role models and that's what's kind of scary and sometimes it's not evident going into a situation but As I mentioned, when you're in a remote extreme environment, emotions are very much heightened and people really reveal their true character in those situations. And so I just like learning every mountain for me, even if it's going back to Mount Rainier again or going to Mount Shasta in California, it's just a little over 14,000 feet. I have just as much fun on those mountains as I have on
0: the really big peaks. There's a lot of moments here where you were in extremis. Which one of those was the time where you felt the most lost?
2: The time I felt the most lost was on an expedition that was my most life-changing expedition. It was the expedition that taught me The most about leadership and showed me a shining example of the type of leader that I wanted to be going forward. This was an expedition across Antarctica. It was 600 miles on skis from the edge of the West Antarctic ice shelf all the way to the South Pole. 600 miles, and you're dragging a 150 pound sled with all your gear and supplies that's harnessed to your waist. And I trained as hard as I possibly could because. That's just who I am. I'm gonna train hard. I'm gonna show up because I wanna be the MVP on my team. I know I might not be the fastest or the strongest, but I wanna be the biggest contributor. I wanna do everything I can. So of course I'm gonna train. Of course I'm gonna be prepared. Of course I'm gonna show up. And I wanna always be thinking, I could not be any more prepared. I could not have trained any harder than I did leading up to this trip. So we get to Antarctica and I'm with four other people all from different countries. Our team leader was a guy named Eric Phillips from Australia. And we hit the ice, we get dropped off on the edge of the ice shelf and we're on the continent in Antarctica for almost two months. So Antarctica is the coldest, windiest place on earth. Summertime when we were there, average temperature in summers, 50 below zero, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 50. So we start skiing and it was very obvious within the first couple of days that even though I trained really hard and I was very dedicated, I could not keep up with my teammates. I was the slowest, weakest person on my team. And I thought, how is this possible? Because I trained really hard. And while I'm not typically as fast on a mountain with guys that are six foot four, 220 pounds, I can typically hold my own with the rest of the people in the group. And the law of physics basically dictates that somebody who is my size is not going to be able to haul a 150-pound sled as quickly or as efficiently as somebody who's 230 pounds. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how dedicated I was, I couldn't keep up with my team. And I just started feeling like the most worthless person. I just started thinking, I'm sure nobody wants me here because I was thinking in the past about weak members that I had had on teams. Whether it was in the business world or on a mountain, I would just think, oh man, I wish that person weren't on my team because they're slowing us down so much. Why are we stuck with this person? And now I was that. Person. And so I was struggling physically. And then the thought of slowing down my team just caused me to double down on my frustration even more. And it was just really a low point because I was sure no one wanted me there. And about five days into the trip, I overheard our team leader, Eric Phillips, talking in his tent to my teammate, George, my twice my size teammate from Canada. And he said, Wow, poor Allison, she's really struggling with the weight of her sled. And George said, I know she's so much smaller than everybody. And Eric said, You know what? I think we should help her out. Let's take some weight out of her sled, make it a little bit easier. And George said, Great idea, Eric. I'm in. And just listening to these guys talk about wanting to help me instead of wanting to cut me from the team really amazed me. But what r- amazed me even more was the way that they handled the situation the next day. They got out of the tent, and Eric said, hey, everybody, before we start skiing today, I just want to weigh everybody's sled. I want to make sure they're all about even. George, help me out here. Let's weigh these sleds. And they would each pick up the end of this big 150-pound sled, and they would try to lift them off the ice to, like they were weighing them to figure out how heavy they were. And they each picked up the end of the sled. All right, this one feels good. All right, let's weigh my sled. They each grabbed the end of Eric's sled. They lifted off the ice. All right, this one feels good let's weigh Allison's sled. And they each grab an end of this huge 150 pound sled. They get it about six inches off the ice and they both drop it back down to the ice and they start clutching their backs. Like they just strained their back and got a hernia from trying to lift this sled. And Eric said, holy shit, what is in this sled? This is crazy you have the heaviest sled out of all of us. We need to make this a little more even. And George said, yeah, this is crazy how much weight you're carrying and why are you carrying so much more than the rest of us? Let's try to even this out a bit. So George took my food bag out of my sled. Eric took my fuel canisters. And now these guys are carrying more than what they should have been carrying in order to help me out. And I went from feeling like the worst most unwanted person on this team to feeling like a valuable team member whose leader was incredibly invested in my success. And it just meant so much to me that they were willing to do this for me and let me keep my pride intact because they didn't Mm. scold me about being slower. They knew this wasn't a question of preparation or desire or determination. It was just about physics. I couldn't carry the heavy sled. And it was such a great lesson for me because it completely changed the situation for me, not only on that trip, but every subsequent trip, I realized that it is my job to help whoever is struggling feel like they are a valuable contributor to the team. And of course, after these guys helped me out, I wanted to do something to try to help them out. And what I realized was these really tall guys were having trouble building snow barricades around the tent. Because at the end of the day, you you ski for 12 to 15 hours, you pitch your tent on the ice, and you have to build a snow barricade around it out of the snow and ice to protect it from the elements. And these tall guys trying to use our short snow shovel were wrenching their backs, trying to bend over in the snow. Well, at five foot four, I'm shorter to the ground, so I can use that snow shovel more easily. So I became the designated snow shoveler. And every night after they took the weed out of my sled, I became the person that made the barricade around their tent to protect it from getting destroyed throughout the night. And so it was also a great lesson for me because I realized we all have an area where we can shine. We Mm. all have us, our own superpower. But if we're so focused on comparing ourselves to other people in areas where they are strong, like I was thinking, oh, I'm worthless because I can't drag the sled as quickly as my teammates. We may never uncover the area where we can really shine, right? I was the best snow shoveler on the trip. And at the end of the trip, Eric was saying, you know what I think I'm going to remember most about this trip? And I said, what? And he said, I think how much crazy Allison likes to shovel snow. (laughs) And I said, are you kidding? I hate to shovel snow. I said, the only reason I was shoveling snow is because I overheard you talking in your tent about taking the weight out of my sled. And so we figured it all out at the end, but it was just for me, a, a life changing moment, a leadership changing moment. And I feel like everybody is in a leadership position. Everybody listening to this podcast is in a leadership position. We are all in a position to have a positive influence on the people around us and help them try to achieve more than they ever thought possible. In leadership, it's not about having a certain title or how many people report to you or something like that. And so I want everybody to really have this leadership mentality. And So for me, it was life-changing because I realized I can always be that person to try to help somebody who's struggling and make them feel like they're a valuable contributor. And if you can do that for somebody, you can really turn around the situation and get even a better outcome than you would have gotten had they been an on-par performer from the
0: get-go. I love that. Yeah, you know, weirdly, a nerd in me is going to come out, but um, have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? (laughs) (laughs) I have not, but both my brothers were big D&D players. Big. I was going to say that lesson of we all have something that We're good at, and not everyone has to be good at the same things to be um, an equal contributor to a group goal. Is really built into the mechanics of the game because there are very specific kinds of characters you can be, and not everyone is going to have the strength of a troll. Um, Some people are going to be little gnome characters who are not going to carry anything, but they can cast spells or they can, you know, pick locks and. and so I just thought that is a lesson that I feel like we tried to bake into the stories that we tell, and yet somehow it's also possible that we fail to take that lesson to heart because some people fail to exercise that or to practice that with themselves and with others. So I think that's a really beautiful yeah. story and a great lesson. I just want to say I love the spirit of this podcast. So much
2: because everyone has a story, right? And we can sh- turn things around for ourselves, but sometimes our stories will turn things around for other people. I think your story is so incredibly inspiring. Just as I've taken things from your story, I hope somebody can take things from my story, something that will help them keep going during times of uncertainty and being okay with not having visibility. You don't have to know what's coming down the trail. You just have to put one foot in front of the other. And that's how you get to the top of any mountain.
1: Hearing Allison's story has me wondering about my own mountain. We all have one and reaching the summit takes persistence.
0: That mentality certainly got me through the mountain of prison, but that's not the only peak I'm facing. In terms of rebuilding my life, I still feel like I'm stuck 300 feet from the top.
1: And you still have to survive the journey down. The summit can never be the goal.
0: However long it takes, we know we're surrounded by other travelers who we know are rooting for us, just like we're rooting for them.
1: She's talking about you, listener.
0: So come on. Get lost with us. Find us on Twitter at Amanda Knox,
1: at Man Under Bridge.
0: And as you climb your own personal mountains, getting higher and higher, as the hypoxia has you seeing stars, it would mean everything to us if you'd spare five of them for a labyrinth review.
1: This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional writing by Sophia Gates, editing and sound design by Josh Thane, and theme music by Josh Budo Karp.
0: Fun fact, for every hour of Labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering.
1: What keeps us going? Coffee. Coffee.
0: So if you're enjoying Labyrinths, please buy us a coffee.
1: Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation.
0: Thanks for getting lost with us.